Welcome to Real Clear Politics' latest podcast, The First 100 Days. I'm David Byler, and I'll be your host as we examine President Trump's first 100 days in office. In our ninth episode, Real Clear Politics national political correspondent Caitlin Huey Burns talks to Dan Haller, the vice president of Heritage Action, a conservative group opposed to the GOP healthcare bill. Then, Real Clear World editor Joel Weikenot talks with Kai Leers, the campaign analyst for the Dutch Daily De Volkskrant, about the results from the Netherlands election and a preview of the upcoming French elections. First up, Caitlin talks with Dan Haller about conservatives' opposition to the GOP healthcare bill. The conversation took place before Thursday's scheduled House vote. Dan Haller is the Vice President of Heritage Action. Thank you for joining me today. Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, this healthcare vote coming up and basically what its prospects are moving forward. As we're talking now, Republicans don't yet have enough votes in the House. They're busy collecting them before the final vote. But we're also looking that to to the next phase, too. I mean, if it, even if it passes the House, the Senate is no sure bet. I'm wondering how you see the future of this bill right now. I mean, the, the future is certainly in jeopardy. Uh, the, the dynamics in the House right now are that conservatives and, and a handful of moderates have serious policy concerns with the bill. The main concern coming from the conservative circle is that the bill actually doesn't repeal enough of Obamacare. And if you look at what the, the American Health Care Act is doing, it basically leaves Obamacare's regulatory architecture in place. That means that uh, you know, the premiums will continue to be higher than they should be. The federal government will have more control over health care and the plans offered, uh, especially on the individual market. That is a dynamic uh, that was sort of the core of Obamacare, and it will remain in place. And until they can get rid of that, and get those provisions repealed through this bill, it's hard to see how they are going to have conservative votes to get it out of the House. You guys are key voting this bill uh, in the House, which means that you're going to be counting who votes for it and who votes against it. What kind of leverage do you think you have in this? Because we saw the president go this week to Capitol Hill trying to twist some arms on this bill, trying to get people to vote for it. I've talked to lawmakers coming out of that meeting who said, yes, the president is a very effective negotiator, but he's not yet moved my vote. Um, I'm wondering what kind of leverage you have against uh, this president at this time. Yeah, you know, I mean, the, the dynamics here are that we are trying to get the best policy possible. And you know, one of the things that, that I hope we can avoid through this entire process is passing a bill that claims to repeal Obamacare but won't actually drive down premiums. Because if, if that's what happens, you're going to have Republican lawmakers running for re-election in 2018 saying, hey, we repealed Obamacare. And folks will look at their premiums and say, no, you didn't. And President Trump will be running for re-election in 2020 saying, hey, I repealed and replaced Obamacare with something great. And people will be looking at their pocketbooks and saying, why doesn't it feel like you did? And that is a really bad political situation. It's awful policy because people will still be hurting and suffering under high premiums that we have under Obamacare. But the politics of it are awful. And I think what you're seeing from conservative groups like Heritage Action and you know, conservative members is they're trying to get the best possible policy, and the politics will follow that. And hopefully that is an argument that's being made inside the White House right now um, to, to try to bring folks over there along to, to the argument that you need to get at these regulations through legislation. The House leadership and uh, the White House, they're making this kind of a binary choice, right? They're saying – we have to pass this bill or Obamacare stays. 
Um, I know that uh, conservative lawmakers say that they don't buy into that, that they say that there can be improvements to this legislation, that this isn't the end-all be-all, that there are other opportunities. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, if, if this bill fails, either in the House or the Senate, whatever form, um, you know, Obamacare still stands. So do you think that conservatives will be left having to answer the question of whether um, Obamacare is better than Ryan Care or Trump Care or whatever it's being called now? I mean, it doesn't have to be a binary choice. I mean, Speaker Ryan went around making that argument for a week or so ago, um, and then the White House made clear that they were open to negotiations, and, and Speaker Ryan opened up the bill for, for amendments. Now, they weren't necessarily the type of amendments that, that addressed our concerns, but he did open up the bill. So it's obviously not a binary choice uh, that's been false from the moment that, that the Speaker uttered that phrase. What we have to do is actually get at the core problem. And if we want to say we're repealing Obamacare, and, and there's nobody that wants to repeal Obamacare more than, than the conservatives both in the House and, and the Senate and, and outside of Congress, um, we actually have to repeal it. You can't claim to repeal it and not do it. So the, the, the binary choice, if there is one, is do you repeal the core architecture of Obamacare or do you leave it in place? Um, we're suggesting that you actually need to repeal the core architecture of Obamacare. Another interesting feature of the communications on this, I mean, the president yesterday was talking about passing this in political terms, warning lawmakers, you will lose your seats if you don't vote for this bill. He also talked about the possibility of primary challenges for some of the holdouts. Does that threat carry much weight, do you think? Uh, you know, I mean, if, if you look at somebody like a Mark Meadows or a Jim Jordan, their constituents know that nobody's fought harder to repeal Obamacare over the past several Congresses than they have. Uh, they know their constituents. They're trying to deliver on the promise that, that they ran on. I think the broader question, though, is one of general election politics. If, if premiums continue to go up and the American people are, have no um, – perceive no real difference between uh, Obamacare and whatever comes after it, what does that do to the Republican Party, um, both in terms of public trust and, and how Republicans handle health care, but across the board? Uh, what does that do to President Trump's reelection effort if he is saying that we repealed and replaced Obamacare with something great, but the American people don't think it's great? That's that's the real thing that we have to confront here and to make sure that we get right so it doesn't become a politically damaging situation. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, so are you confident that this bill, as it stands now, doesn't have the votes in the House or the Senate? Uh, right now, it certainly doesn't look like the votes are there for it. Is, is there a path to getting the votes in the House? There, there most certainly is. Uh, get, getting at the regulations and insurance mandates are the way to do that. Um, it, it'll drive down premiums. It'll get rid of the, the regulatory overreach or, or the provisions that allow the regulatory overreach that we experienced under Obama. Um, that's how you get the bill out of the House. Uh, from there, you know, obviously the Senate is difficult in any legislative environment, and this is no different. Uh, but I certainly think there's a path to get it through the Senate, especially if you can rightly make the claim that premiums are being driven down. Would you be confident that uh, whatever passes the House, if it does, um, senators are saying, there, there are many senators so far saying that the bill as it stands in the House will not pass the Senate. Um, are you confident that uh, changes could be made after the House bill uh, to to fit what you want, um, or is it is it uh, difficult 
to do that at that point? I mean, it, it, is, it is difficult to, it would be difficult for conservatives in the House to vote on this bill based on a promise of action in the Senate. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, I think everybody fully expects this bill to be changed in the Senate. And, you know, during the last time we did reconciliation when Barack Obama was president, the Senate actually made the bill better. Uh, so, th- so there's certainly that possibility as well. Um, the, the challenge is just figuring out how you, um, through this legislative process, get at the regulations. We think that the House should take the lead on that uh, and, and are very hopeful that the Senate would follow along. The other uh, message that the White House is, is promoting and others are promoting is this, this idea that you know we have to get health care done so that we can move on to uh, the meatier items like tax reform and other things that the president wants to get done. Do you buy that argument? I mean, the White House and the Republican leadership set out an ambitious agenda. And if they were to repeal Obamacare and reform the tax code and do a lot of the stuff they're talking about, the country would be better off for it. But, yeah, they have to start with repealing Obamacare, which requires getting at the rules and regulations and mandates in, in the first title of the bill. Do you think the, the Republican Party is at a, is in a civil war right now? I mean, the the idea, you know, during the campaign uh, that Republicans were saying, we just need the White House to kind of fit the final piece of the puzzle to be able to do the things we want to do, like repealing Obamacare. Um, but it seems like the party is still uh, at odds with itself on this key issue. Yeah, I mean, I, I think interpreting this as, as a sign that the GOP is in the midst of a civil war is a bit dramatic. Um, there, there is certainly a difference in terms of how you handle some of the nuances of health care, and, and there are some important differences on that. But that's not really what this debate has broken down into. It's, it's basically broken down into do you repeal the regulatory structure that is Obamacare, or do you leave it in place for a promise of getting at it later? Um, and, and the arguments being thrown up are procedural, not sort of principled or ideological or policy-based. So I think this is just more of a inside baseball congressional argument that um, we don't think uh, is is convincing in terms of not doing the right thing. What have your conversations been like with lawmakers? You, um, Heritage Action and other groups have been on the Hill talking to various lawmakers in the House and the Senate. What have those conversations been like? There's a lot of frustration, um, you know, e- even from with folks who uh, are inclined to vote yes for the bill or are frustrated by how the rollout happened, um, by the way the policy came together, uh, by what they think is going to be really a, a really difficult proposal to explain back home, uh, fear that they're going to be running in 2018 when premiums are still high. Uh, so, so there's a lot of frustration, a lot of consternation. Um, I I do think that folks view the White House as wanting to get this right, or at least some folks in the White House is wanting to get this right, whereas their leadership has been pretty obstinate about it. Um, So so that interesting divide is emerging. But sort of underlying all of that is a deep desire by folks to get to yes. Uh, You see Congressman Meadows talk about it pretty much every time he's asked, that he would love to vote yes. He is trying to get to yes. Um, but the congressional leadership or the Republican leadership in the House anyway is standing in the way of, of helping conservatives get to yes because they won't do sort of the, the bare minimum, which is repeal the regulatory architecture of Obamacare. Do you think, though, that you know some have argued that uh, doing that would turn off some of the more moderate Republicans that the party needs to uh, attract to get a bill done, especially since Democrats are not going to vote for 
anything like this. Yeah, I mean, the Republicans have been pretty clear sort of across the board that Obamacare was wrong, that it increased insurance premiums, and they wanted to repeal it. Um, you know, it, I don't think that uh, I, I don't think that was just merely lip service to voters. Uh, I think it was genuine. And the challenge now is they had the real opportunity to do it, and they need to do it. Um, you know, the health care system wasn't perfect before Obamacare, not by any stretch, but it's even worse now. And if they want to get in a position where they can make things better, they need to get rid of Obamacare. Now Joel talks to Kai, who wrote a weekly piece about the Dutch elections for Real Clear World. Hi listeners, this is Joel Weikenot. I'm the managing editor at Real Clear World, and one of the biggest stories we had on our site this last month was the Dutch election. Now, the Netherlands held its election on the Ides of March, March 15th, and uh, the results were a mixed, a uh, bit of a mixed bunch. This country of some 17 million people sent 13 different parties to the 150-seat Tweede Kamer, that is the second chamber, the lower house of parliament in the Netherlands. And now Kai, uh, Kai Leers is with us. He's a, an election campaign analyst for the Dutch daily Volkskrant, and he also worked, he also wrote for Real Clear World about the election. And now Kai, as we sit here today, uh, almost a week later after the election, what's the latest? Has the complex process of putting together a governing coalition begun yet? Yeah, it has. Um, the Dutch election, well, the Dutch coalition government building process, much like uh, dating. Um, you've got several parties, all of whom are playing hard to get, and you have one major party who is trying to get all the wallflowers into government. Uh, but with everybody playing hard to get and keeping their cards close to their chest, it's um, it's a tight. It can be a tough cookie. And uh, tell us a bit about you, the the, the uh, leading party. Is the same party correct? It's a centre-right party that that was has been in government for the last since the last election, correct? Yeah, yeah, it has been in government since uh, actually six years. It's been this was the second coalition government led by the VVD, Free Market Conservatives, uh, under Prime Minister Mark Rutte. Right, and so what kind of coalition do you sort of see coming together here? Is it possible to tell at this point? Uh, yeah, well, choices, although there are many parties in Parliament, uh, choices are limited. The VVD, the Free Market Conservatives, would very much like to form a government with at least the Christian Democrat CDA and the Liberals of D66. So then you'd have three parties. Uh, but even though there's there'd be three parties involved, they would still have a minority of seats in the Tweede Kamer, or the lower parliament. Um, so then you a fourth party. Now, uh, there are basically two parties in play here at the moment. Uh, there's one leftist party, the Green Left, called Groen Links in the Netherlands, um, which, well, it's a, it's a Green and Leftist party. They're the only leftist party to win the elections in these last elections. And the other party is the Christian Union, uh, which I suppose would literally translate to Christian Union. And they're seen as Christian, uh, as Christian Orthodox party. And those are both basically, either one of those two will become the fourth uh, coalition uh, government member party. And now uh, one, one party you don't mention in, uh, in that possible uh, coalition is the Freedom Party, the PVV of Gert Wilders. And now in the English language press, and much of it both in, in the UK and in the US, as readers of Real Clear World certainly know, uh, Wilders was long the focus, uh, sort of 
one of these populists who has, who has been considered to be on the rise in Europe and in the United States as well. Um, he was leading in the polls for a long time. Uh, what happened to him and how would you gauge his party's performance? Well, he gained five seats um, to end at 20. Uh, he's now in second place with a number of other parties in terms of number of seats. Uh, but still, yeah, he underperformed when compared to polls. Um, I think the focus um, on his uh, performance was sort of misplaced, especially by the foreign press. Uh, you got to realize that Builders never wins beyond a maximum of one-sixth of the vote here in the Netherlands, and other parties excluded him, uh, making all but governing impossible at the outset. So his impact would have been minimal in the Dutch relations uh, context. Uh, even if he had maximized his potential. Uh, still, any win by large, well, sorry, any large win by Wilders would have been a boon to those of his European populist coalition of Marine Le Pen in France and the AFD, Germany, Lega Nord in Italy, etc. So do you think that this, is this a defeat for sort of, or is it a setback for what's been described as, as the populist tide, rising tide? Is this a setback for it, a tangible setback, or is it, 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 does it have? Does this have in the end? Will this have little to do with Le Pen and uh, Leganord and the other ones you mentioned? Well, um, I think uh, at this point, uh, Will's performance is not an outlier. Uh, in France, Marine Le Pen is still going strong in the polls, but it seems that she too has an electoral ceiling of approximately, well, 25% vote. Uh, when you add the polling of the other candidates together, uh, Macron, Fillon, Hamon, Ménégon, she's outnumbered. Um, and with things as they stand, Le Pen seems destined to lose in the second round. Um, so yeah, so basically a big win by Wilders and Netherlands may have changed the French election campaign narrative a bit, really would have also raised expectations for Le Pen to do better, which he isn't. Uh, so I'm not sure a strong performance by Wilders would have helped her, actually. So it, it's uh, maybe a little bit counterintuitive then. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, so, so let's set Wilders aside for a second and, and focus on, I mean, this was a very strange sort of election for an American to watch. So many parties, 13, as we mentioned, in, in such a small country. Um, how do you apportion winners and losers? Which, what, what sort of political streams more than parties, because, it, 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 because that's more the point, what sort of political streams, left, right, globalist, anti-globalist, won in this election and which lost? Well, um, the absolute losers are Labour, or the Partij van de Arbeid, as they're called in Dutch, uh, Social Democrats, leftist party. And that is they the centre-left party, correct? Yeah. Yeah, they won 38 seats in 2012 and were crushed this time around, shedding 29 seats to retain only 9. So, yeah, they, were, they, had a, they suffered a huge loss, the biggest, actually the biggest uh, loss in election uh, records ever since, I, I think certainly since, well, certainly since World War II. Uh, people who voted Labour in 2012 in large numbers did so for strategic reasons to keep the right-wing VVD out of power. Um, this time around, the VVD refused to play that left versus right-wing game, which changed the narrative. So as a result, the strategic zero-sum game of either a left-wing or a right-wing party winning the elections was absent, which allowed voters to, well, the freedom to vote who they wanted for. Uh, as for which stream left, well, uh, in all parties that would qualify as the left gained 45 seats out of 150 this time versus 59 in 2012. 
while the right-wing parties won 80 seats this time around, as opposed to 71 in 2012. So basically, uh, if you just add up those numbers, you can already see the left really lost here and the right really won. Uh, so there's definitely been a shift. Uh, we seem to be heading for a center-right government, free market conservatives of the VVD, Christian Democrats with CDA, Liberals, D66. Um, so either way, with VVD, CDA, D66 and government, emphasis will be on reforms in social security, taxes and labor laws. And this is definitely uh, uh, an agenda that's diametrically opposed to what the leftist stream wanted or rather what the leftist parties wanted. So yeah, you can definitely say that the uh, left-wing uh, side of politics uh, really lost this time. So a question that has uh, come, come up rel with relative frequency is, is whether Wilders um, won even though he lost. In other words, uh, Mark Rutte took the VVD quite a bit to the right, and did he just absorb some of Wilders' voters? Is this going to be a more hardline, anti-immigration, anti-EU government, or, or or not? Well, um, if you look at um, the kind of parties and their uh, platforms when it comes to the European Union, for instance, and uh, whether we should be more skeptical of the European Union or more supportive, um, D66, Liberals and Groenlinks, so the Greens, were the only two winning parties um, we really have a favorable view on the European project. Um, a majority of other parties, the VVD, the Christian Democrats, CDA, of course, Builders, uh, 50 plus, a small, smaller party that also made gains. The Christian Orthodox parties uh, are skeptical of the European Union to varying degrees. In other words, most winners this, this election cycle uh, are definitely EU skeptical. You can definitely say that, yeah. Right, you talk about degree of skeptical, though. Um, yeah. it, it, the VVD supports remaining in the European Union, doesn't it? Yes, yes. Okay. So, yes, they do. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, but I suppose you can say that the VVD has moved to the more skeptical wing. Uh, in the past 10 or so years. Uh, they want to reform the European Union um, as it's their ideological want. They want to make the European Union smaller. Uh, they want to reduce what they call bureaucracy. Uh, but of course, you know, with all those, uh, well, you could call them, you could call them benefits. There's also, um, there's also the other end of the, the spectrum, which would mean that, uh, you know, the, the European Union as, as it is now would have less of a function. Right. Um, do, do you think there is, do, do you see any evidence of a pushback anywhere in European politics of Europeans reconsidering the EU despite its struggles? I think we see a little bit of evidence of it in Germany where Mar Martin Schulz, who was recently the Speaker of the EU Parliament, is doing quite well in the polls and challenging Angela Merkel, and in France, centrist Emmanuel Macron, who is very outspokenly pro-EU, he is now the apparent front-runner in the presidential race. Um, is, there, are, is there another sort of stream, are we seeing a sort of realignment where you have populists on the one side and where you have pro-EU uh, uh, forces gathering on the other? Is, is that something that's happening or is that, is, is that a premature oh. interpretation? Well, uh, yes and no. Um, to go back to the VVD for, for a moment and the question on whether it's EU skeptical, the question of populism, it's very interesting that the um, VVD's political leader and incumbent prime minister, uh, Mark Rutte, 
um, is now basically coining his own brand of populism. He he uh, refers to Geert Wilders' Freedom Party as the wrong kind of populism, right. um, inferring that he is of the right kind of populism. Um, so yeah, uh, on the matter of pushback, uh, there definitely is some. The election of Donald Trump in the United States has caused centrist and leftist voters to uh, basically get scared and whipped into action. Uh, over here, it has definitely created a new sense of urgency among the hitherto, uh, well, largely apathetic major voting bloc polls and voters' research shows. So this is uh, likely to have an effect on turnout. And I suppose this is what we're seeing in both Germany and France right now. People are basically worried. Right, and turnout was very high in the Netherlands, was it not? And yes, up. yes, uh, up 80. 80, up, upwards of 81%. Right, right. Um, so, we'll go back to, well, first of all, I, it's really interesting, you bring up, you bring up uh, Mark Rutte and what he said about the right kind of populism. What, what kind of populism is that? I think this is, this is a term that gets bandied about a lot, and a lot of people, uh, especially outside politics, aren't quite sure what it means, but, but are pretty sure that it means something bad. So what, what is Ritta trying to do with that word, and what does he mean by the right kind of populism? Well, he never really used the words uh, right kind of populism, but he said that there's a wrong kind of populism. Right, right. So he said Geert Wilders represents the wrong kind of populism, which then infers, of course, that he is a proponent of the right kind of populism. So you might say that that's sort of civilized populism. So right now, Rutte is um, uh, 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 posing himself or positioning himself as the, uh, the politician with, who's on the right side of populism. So there seems to be at least some election narrative, political rhetorics, or rhetoric. There seems to be a, a, a sort of shift going on between well, whatever well, what Rutte calls the wrong side of wrong kind of populism and the civilized populism. Um, and that's very interesting because um, that would mean a fragmentation and a recategorization of what is populism. Uh, so, and if you take a step back and you look at what's going on, then that is definitely Ritter setting one, uh, tipping really tipping his toe his toes into um, uh, the pond of populism, but trying to reframe it, as it were, right. trying to divide voters within the populist bloc to either opt for his kind of civilized populism or turn their backs to that and go for the wrong kind of populism. Right. So this is actually. Um, if you're a sort of fan of election campaign engineer, electioneering, um, this is a sort of this is really an offensive step trying to divide vote backers of populist votes right. of the populist vote into two camps. Right, just a good bit of electioneering, I suppose. Absolutely, yes. Right, right. So shifting to the other side of the political spectrum, and you talked about you know, and I think. Undoubtedly, the results show that the left overall is, is at least a traditional left, as we have known it in Europe, is a big loser here. Uh, as you mentioned, the PFDA, the Labour Party, falling from 38 seats to 9, is that correct? Around there. Um, it, it, we sort of see it everywhere in, in, across Europe. In, in the United Kingdom, the Labour Party there, under the far-left Corbyn, has become utterly irrelevant. and left Brexit Britain completely lacking in opposition, while in France, the socialist president, Francois Hollande, 
will become the first president in this republic not to even run for re-election. And it goes, it goes on and on and on. Um, but at some point, it's not like these voters are disappearing. It's not like the people who hold points of view that cause them to vote for the left are, are just going away. So what do you think is the future of the left in Europe? Is it in parties like Groenlinks, which grew, uh, which grew considerably in, in the Dutch election, quadrupled its seats? Is it, is it a more urbane sort of, what, 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 how do we get a feel for what might happen, not now, but maybe one or two election cycles down the line to the European left? Well, um, the story is, well, I can understand that if you're looking at things from a, um, uh, well, perhaps from an American perspective, um, things can be, things can seem pretty obvious, uh, the story can seem pretty obvious, although it's more complicated. Um, uh, we uh, outsiders tend to look at uh, the major countries in the European Union, but it's actually not really all that bad in Europe, in Norway, Sweden, Denmark. Finland, so all Scandinavia, uh, social democratic parties are actually doing and polling quite well, for instance. Um, as to your question, on the one hand, it seems to be a question of timing. Um, if you look at what's happening in Portugal, there the left is doing quite well, but on the back of the economy that was already improving when a new left-wing government took power. So basically, if, you know, if you're being a bit cynical, you could say that, they, that, the economy, that they got into government when the economy was already improving. And they're benefiting off that. Uh, in Germany, the leftist SPD, as you already mentioned, Martin Schulz, is also resurging. Uh, so apparently, voters didn't think much of the party's former leader, but still held the SPD in high regard as a possible counterweight to the Christian Democrats' Angela Merkel. Uh, apparently, all that was needed was a change of leadership at the SPD by someone who voters apparently perceive as someone who can uh, replace Merkel, who has the abilities to, to take her place as a powerful chancellor. Uh, and, but yeah, like, on the other hand, you know, your question is, um, so what, what's happened to, for instance, the Pays Diable, what's, what's going on with the Socialist Party in France, which is also in the doldrums? Uh, basically, it's a failure to deliver. The Dutch Labour Party went into the election campaign of 2012 with the promise of keeping the right-wing BVD out of power uh, and establishing a center-left government. Uh, voters on the right, though, voted to keep Labour out of power, so the VVD narrowly won, and both parties then formed the government together, which naturally incensed supporters of both parties. Uh, but then Labour undertook some monumental and far-stretching reforms precisely on the issues that matter most to many leftist Dutch voters, so uh, Labour then became issue owner of basically all that went wrong as a result of those reforms. Uh, so what happened to Labour in the Netherlands is in many ways what happened to the Liberal Democrats in the United Kingdom who were punished by British voters for joining a coalition government with the Conservatives. Uh, as you may remember, they joined the coalition government in 2010 after winning the election and were, uh, well, quite simply, but demolished in 2015 as their voters ran away in droves because they, the Liberal, the Liberal Democrats, uh, joined government with the Conservatives. So in each case, um, what we're seeing here, it's, it's contingent on, on the national situation. It's, it's, it's extrapolating a little bit too much to say that it's some sort of European-wide phenomenon. Exactly, exactly. For, and much the same has happened to the Parti Socialiste in France, of François Hollande. François Hollande um, Hollande and his party made many promises, but uh, you gotta say that ultimately they backed down from many of the ideas when the French budget deficit was just seen as getting too high. Uh, Hollande then reversed course, while some of his most eye-catching reform proposals were put on hold after popular protests. 
On the other hand, he, he ran through, as a Frenchman, as many Frenchmen say, uh, very unpopular proposals uh, going out of going outside while sort of bypassing the National Assembly. So that's really uh, that does not look good on his resume, so to speak. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it is definitely uh, a question. So again, it's a, it's a question of timing. It's a question of the, how is the economy performing. It's also a question of how is the, ref, the, the former refugee crisis of 2015-2016. How is that? Um, uh, you know, will that see a resurgence? Where are we in Europe going to see another influx of refugees? And if so, how are voters going to respond to that? Uh, leftist parties. Well, especially here in Western Europe, have a more uh, progressive, more welcoming message, while right-wing parties uh, basically want to uh, close borders to refugees. So, it's, it's all basically, if you ask me, uh, whether to, to what, what my long-term view is in one or two election cycles, it really is dependent on events. It's dependent on the economy. It is dependent on uh, perhaps new terrorist assaults in Europe. It's it, it had right. depends on whether it's going to be another. Uh, crisis uh, in Eastern Europe with with Russia. Uh, as right. a, and as for for a long term view overall of Europe for leftist parties, it really really is all those possible contingencies aside. Really depends on national issues. Right. Uh, so one last question for you, Kai, and we thank you for yeah. uh, joining us. Um, Give us your on-the-ground view, um, and and for our listeners who don't know, Kai uh, works out of Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Um, so give us your on-the-ground view from the spot of how Europeans, both in the sense of European leaders and of people on the street, have reacted in the months since Donald Trump was elected, and especially since he took office. Uh, most people will see baffled by Donald Trump. Uh, some react with sheer horror. Um, in fact, even a large swath of uh, Geert Wilders voters um, in polls said that Geert Wilders shouldn't associate himself too much with Trump. Um, now this has to do with all kinds of things Donald Trump has said and done. Uh, sexist remarks about how he treats women, for instance, uh, didn't go down well over here. Um, seemingly unperturbed, unperturbed lying, his recklessness is putting off many people on the right and of course on the left. Um, and on the left, his election has spurred a lot of people into action. That's not just here in the Netherlands, it's also in France, it's in Germany. If you just look at um, national newspapers, national news outlets in France, Germany, Belgium, Spain, United Kingdom, well basically anywhere, um, it's Donald Trump all over the place and not in the most positive terms when it comes to news coverage. Uh, so yeah, basically everybody's really baffled uh, about it. Um, and only a minority of the heart right here in the Netherlands seems to support Trump in whatever he does, much like they support Willers in whatever he does. Um, because, simply because Trump and Willers are their champions against what they perceive as leftist lovers of Islam and um, of course the fear of a change in cultural identity. Right. So uh, how can we expect Trump to be received when uh, he makes his way over to that part of the world? Uh, well, that will be... I, I, I would only imagine that he will be received politely by the government leaders because, of course, that's what protocol demands. Uh, but I wouldn't, ex I wouldn't expect the kind of turnout for, for instance, uh, like Barack Obama had in 2008 when he visited Berlin when 300,000 Germans 
Berliners welcomed him and um, celebrated his, his, his coming as sort of Moses. Um, <laughs> I, I'm afraid you won't see that uh, when uh, Trump comes to town. No, I'm afraid uh, it'll, things will be pretty quiet. There'll be a lot of protests, though. I can guarantee you that. This has been Kai Lears. Dutch election campaign analyst for Volkskrant and for Real Clear World. You can catch his work at realclearworld.com. Kai, can't thank you enough uh, for joining us. Sure. All right. Thanks for joining us. Please leave any feedback and comments at realclearpolitics.com.